and welcome to the Mindful Symposia series, a service of the University of Houston's Yoga and Mindfulness Research Lab. This is our inaugural episode. My name is Chase Phillip, and today our guest is Kimberly Smoot. Kim is a doctoral candidate in the School Psychology Program at the University of Houston. She holds degrees from Texas A&M in Corpus Christi and soon University of Houston. But before we set off, I'd like to start with the intention of this podcast. Our hope is that this podcast can act as an open forum for researchers and practitioners to talk about their work in mindfulness, spirituality, and well-being, which is why I'm extremely delighted to speak with our first guest ever, Kimberly Smoot. Kim, welcome to the Mindful Symposium series. Hi, thank you for welcoming me. So how did you get into school psychology? What was the path that led you from getting your bachelor's uh, in psychology to school psychology? So I had always had an interest in school, but I didn't want to be a teacher and I really enjoyed psychology. So after the, my final years of doing psychology, I thought to myself, what am I going to do with this degree? I'm not sure uh, because I, I actually did not like the idea of talking to adults and doing that form of therapy. That just wasn't something that really interested me. And after taking um, a course at my alma mater in Corpus Christi, I took a course in sociology of education and it kind of really opened the doors for me and seeing the gaps and also seeing that there's a lot of work that can be done and considering that kids most often get most of their needs met at school. That's kind of the first here before they reach out and, and move to more specialized help, I figured I, I could really make an impact there. So that's when I started to look for programs in psychology that could fit that focus for me. And I, I found school psychology and I realized it's very, it's very broad, but essentially the goal of school psychology is to help students to learn and succeed. And you can do that in various ways, whether you're helping the teachers, families, whether you're working one-on-one with the, with the kids or getting them access to services that they need. So I, I really, I really found a love for school psychology when I connected the dots at the end of the training of my bachelor's. <laughs> so. When did, when did mindfulness start playing a role into that? So you went from from bachelors in psychology, realizing that you wanted to have an effect, not really necessarily wanting to have those conversations with adults, but really wanted to make some sort of systemic impact. Um, did mindfulness, was mindfulness grown out of that desire to do a systemic impact or how did you come to, to incorporate mindfulness into the work that you do now? Well, I had already an interest in mindfulness. I had done a couple of things at my school. I, I attended some workshops. It wasn't ever my full intention to just get into mindfulness, but my biggest interest really was intervention research and mindfulness fits very well in in that aspect. And given that Dr. Smith was primarily focusing on yoga, school-based yoga and mindfulness, that's kind of where that work started. But I had always supported and wanted to further understand mindfulness, especially in my own life, as Mm -hmm. I realized that that was one of the driving forces for me succeeding in school was the fact that I realized I was engaging in mindfulness. I was focused. I attended to the present moment. I just didn't know the research. So having my advisor and already being interested in that and being interested in intervention research in general, that's kind of how it all merged together. Okay. So how would you, for every, I think I alluded to it earlier, but how would you describe your research to somebody who hasn't heard of uh, mindfulness researcher hasn't heard of your research. Hmm. Okay, so 
if I could describe my research, it's just kind of everywhere. I feel like I still haven't fully specialized or focused, hone in on what I really want to do because there's a lot of things that I'm very interested in. Um, But with regard to like mindfulness research, I think one of my biggest interests is uh, getting more debt death in the research because there's a lot of inconsistencies in the mindfulness research so I would like to like fine-tune the research in general and just get a better evidence-based uh, mm-hmm. practice for mindfulness because we do know that it works we're just not so sure how and in schools right. that's something that's very important so mm-hmm. I would describe it as trying to uh, improve evidence-based uh, mindfulness practices for schools. Okay, yeah. that actually kind of segues us perfectly because you recently finished your candidacy on the effects of school-based mindfulness programs on student affect uh, and mindfulness. Would you mind kind of uh, telling us why schools would be interested in adopting a mindfulness curriculum? Yeah, sure. So I think most schools are very interested in promoting and developing children's social emotional uh, learning. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been a gap in the types of curriculums that are available, especially for kids who are in the older grades, kids who are in secondary schooling. So I think because mindfulness activities have been shown to help people regulate their emotions, their thoughts, improve their well-being, there's really been a surge in implementing that. And I think in schools in general kind of go on fads and not speaking down on schools, but they're kind of like, oh, this is something that can work. We're we're going to do it. And, and mindfulness in schools is predicted to improve learning outcomes for, mm-hmm. for children um, and their well-being, academic outcomes, their learning, their affect. And so I think because it supports social emotional curriculum and there's such a need for us to promote and develop these skills for children, I think that's one of the reasons why schools have adapted this. And then it also fits very, uh, it fits well in tiered education or tiered services and interventions. So I think that's another reason why. Okay, I want to put a pin on that tiered comment, about, but I want to circle back around Um, You mentioned social emotional learning. Could you explain what that is and why it's important to students? Yeah, so social emotional learning is is basically curriculum that helps kids manage their behaviors, their cognitions, and their attention. And so really it focuses on like self-management skills and awareness of themselves, awareness of their emotions. And so it kind of combines all that all that to be able to navigate socially um, and be able to communicate with, within themselves and with others. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, would you mind just introducing your study a little bit more? I feel like we haven't gotten the chance to fully introduce your study. Uh, would you mind talking a little bit more about what you were studying, uh, who you were studying, and how you went about that? Yeah, sure. So basically, my candidacy is part of a larger study that involved RAs, like undergraduate RAs, a, a big team, really. And so what we were interested in is in dissecting and dismantling a curriculum called Present Time Kits. And we were, what we were trying to do is to see what the effects were on kids' affect, positive and negative affect. And then we were also trying to see if, if it also increased their mindfulness. So the way that we did that, we collected data for 24 days in a 24-day cycle, and we randomized each activity. So there's, um, there was four activities, and then we compared it to a control group, which was, a, which was stories. And so we randomized... Um, the curriculum 
versus a control. And we studied that and we took children self-reported um, positive and negative affect and mindfulness. And we used a modified version of the panacea. And, uh, which is the positive and negative affective schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we included mindfulness items on, for that survey. So we took the pre and post data for each day, and then we analyzed that data set. And also part of our, our study, we had hoped to collect um, observation data to see how kids' attention was, whether they were off task or on task after having been delivered the activities, but we, we haven't analyzed that yet. So that's kind of a big explanation. That was a part of the larger study. So then, so there was four different activities, as I mentioned, and then the full- For the present activity. time kids, right? Yes, for present time okay. kids. There's four different activities. And then the full pack, and the full package contained all the activities presented in one, and we also included it in their study. And so mm-hmm. my candidacy is only looking at the full curriculum, which includes the four activities compared to the control activity. And my and so my study is a subset of the larger data set that we collected. Okay. And can you tell us what those four studies uh, or those four uh, individual mindfulness activities that the kids actually participated in? What, what were they doing? So there's four different activities. The first, uh, I, I, there's no order to them. It's cross-connect. And the kids were asked to, con- it's basically trying to have like a mind-body connection and focus on uh, that activity. And so the kids would raise their hand and then connect to their, their knee while being guided to focus their attention on like the, the movement part of that. So they would, okay. they would just move and connect their arms to the next leg and do that for um, uh, roughly one minute or so, less than okay. a minute. And then there was pause buttons, which kids were guided or instructed to put their thumbs on the, I think it's called prevascular pressure points of your head and then to pay attention. And as they, as they do the activity, they repeat it like a mantra or a, a phrase. Um, I'm calm, I'm focused, I'm ready to learn. And so that was the pause button. And then you have mindful minute where kids just focus on mindfulness, on being present, uh, being present in the moment. And they were guided through that activity. And then the last activity is belly breathing, which I think most people have heard of, um, where kids are guided to engage in belly breathing and, and focus on that. So those are the four different activities. Were you able to find any significant changes in mindfulness or overall affect uh, at the conclusion of your uh, of your period of observation? So unfortunately, we didn't have any significant effects for uh, negative affect. If anything, we saw slightly increase in negative affect, slightly decreasing in positive affect for kids who, uh, or for the for, for when the kids listen to the mindfulness package, which is not something that you want to say or find in your results. Uh, but yeah. we, did find, we did find a significant effect on time for mindfulness. So kids reported higher levels of mindfulness for both the control activity, which was the story, and they also found higher levels of mindfulness when after they um, listened to the the present time kids, the mindfulness curriculum. So that was kind of strange because we also didn't hypothesize that the control would have any effect on kids' positive or negative affect or mindfulness. So our our study didn't support our hypotheses at all. 
Wow. So why do you think that is? What about these mindfulness curriculum programs, specifically uh, PTK, are not meeting necessarily the needs of the students or increasing affect and meeting all of the things that they're being uh, sold as? Well, I, I can only I can I can only look back at some of the research and mm-hmm. and and kind of draw conclusions from looking at the literature and, and, and really looking at the mindfulness curriculum. I can't really say that it's that if I do, do a dismantling study and look at each activity, maybe we might find some effects. Um, and mm-hmm. particularly for belly breathing and mindfulness, mm-hmm. that's where there is more research. And I think the I, I think because we had floor effects for the negative affect, most kids' negative affect was very low. So it was going to be hard to find a difference. Right, um, okay. Yeah, so I think that, that that that's one thing. But then when you also look at these other curriculums, one thing that was missing um, for the present time kids' curriculum is that other curriculums address um, and they teach kids about their emotions. They teach, so there's a little bit more social emotional learning happening, more explicit. There, there's lessons along with activities um, to for kids to connect the 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 activities to to using them in their everyday life, which is what you want kids to do. That's the ultimate goal is for kids to learn the activities, use them when they need them, and hopefully prevent them from developing psychopathology symptoms or other problems in their life, social community, like problems with social communication or, or, or problems with their peers, things like that. So I think one of the things that was missing is the curriculum itself didn't really target affect like other curriculums did. And then mm-hmm. another thing is that um, some of the, the curriculums varied in length and duration. So some of these kids and other studies had been receiving the mindfulness curriculum for maybe 10, 12 weeks, and then and then the results were um, analyzed. So that's another thing, but also those studies used a different me- method to analyze the data. They, they did within groups, uh, they did between groups, and we used within groups. Could you explain a little bit more what that means and why that is significant for those studies? Yeah, so when you're looking at between group studies, you're comparing a group compared to another group. And sometimes those groups can have individual differences and you Mm -hmm. have to control for those variables. But when you have uh, within groups, which is what what my study focused on, you actually are controlling for those individual differences because you're using the same individual to control for themselves. And so you're comparing the individual, you're, you're comparing the individual, not, you're not comparing them to others other people so that's one of the it's it's a notable strength for our study because a lot of studies don't use within groups they use between groups okay yeah and then just one one last thing that I forgot to mention um for our study also some of the kids have been receiving present time kids since pre-k so we actually didn't we didn't actually ask the kids and we can't really we can't really say that perhaps the reason why there was no effects is because they've been receiving it. Like they, they may have the results that we have may be a result of the present time kids working long term, if that makes sense. So that floor effect that you saw in overall negative affect could have been just like the kids who have been doing this for five for plus five years. years. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. 
So because these kids, although it's a, a very, um, I would say it, it's a unique sample. I would I would I wouldn't say that these kids aren't exposed to stressors. I think perhaps they may have an environment that supports and has a positive support for their stressors and and resources to help them achieve that. So we can't. That we makes can't. sense. Yeah, a school who's going to adopt the program of having kids. Uh, engaged in mindfulness may have already had that. So it could be confounded. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Okay. Now I wanted to ask you a couple of other questions about some of the other work you've done. So much of your other work examines the way cultural diversity can affect students and researchers. Uh, Could you talk a little bit more on some of that work that you do? Yeah, of course. So um, I've worked in two different labs and where I focus on some of these uh, factors. And the first Lab is actually, I'm wearing their shirt. I kind of wanted to represent for this podcast is the Latino Behavioral Health Research Team in the University of Houston. And it, it's in the counseling program, which is different from the school side. So they work, they're working with adult populations for smoking cessation. And the, the primary investigator, Dr. Correa Fernandez, is adapting ACT, which is just a manualized treatment. It is called acceptance commitment therapy. Focuses on some things of mindfulness but she actually wanted to make sure that she's culturally adapting it specifically for Latinos. So because it's kind of a little bit different from my interest, I don't want to work with adults. I mostly focus on the cultural parts of it. So we we worked with other Latinos, making sure that the language is appropriate for the translated manual. We also made sure that we, we had in the manual to include cultural relevant cultural topics so I did I did some of the research for that and also participated in some of the focus groups where we discussed and made sure that some of the translations were appropriate and things like that and that's part of that work then I also briefly worked with the spark lab which focuses on autism related research in in general And that research lab, one of their projects, because I was only part of one of the projects, specifically focused on cultural factors and recruitment and retention for culturally and linguistically diverse families. And so we were hoping to do a systematic review to identify how many articles address research recruitment and retention, where they specifically use strategies in in their research. And so we're trying to identify first if they're if they are even doing this, but also if they are what they found helpful and how we can use it in our own research to make sure that we're including culturally and linguistically diverse families so that there are no gaps when we are implementing some of the, the research in our practice. So, And does this relate to your conceptualization of cultural humility? That, that popped up a, quite a few times in some of the some of the talks that you gave. And so I wanted to kind of get an idea of what cultural humili- humility meant to you um, and whether or not this is, these are the examples of cultural humility. Yeah, it's actually one of the, I, I could say it's one of the examples. Cultural humility was actually coined by Tervalon and Marie Garcia in 1998. They had like a seminal piece that talked about it in the medical field. And now a lot, a lot of other fields are trying to model this and in, into it. And so cultural humility really isn't, it's an addition to cultural competence. So I think what we're trying to do here, it can be described as cultural competence, but cultural humility goes the extra mile and it actually 
really addresses lifelong learning and critical self-reflection with regards to culture. And so really what you're doing is you, you are trying to humble yourself and saying that you are not the expert, especially with cultural things. And that process is actually continual. It doesn't stop. You can't, it's not a check mark that you say I'm culturally competent now. It's something right. that you continue to work on. You continue to learn about other cultures and you kind of let the families and clients or the the people that you're researching and to tell you about themselves you try to build relationships understand and you kind of assert yourself as less of the expert role more of a it's more of a collaboration yes. and in the critical reflection piece of that is making sure that you're reflecting on how you can grow and learn from them but also improve ways to perhaps amend things that sometimes are ingrained in, in like systemic racism and discrimination. So thinking about those things critically and really having moments to reflect on your interactions with people of different cultures, but also with the people that you are working with. So I, I think the research that I'm interested in lends itself well to my journey along cultural humility is I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to make sure that I'm addressing this in every aspect, whether it's practice and research, but it's not the end all be all. It's just part of my process. So something interesting that you mentioned there is, is taking on, taking off the hat of the expert and then just being able to say, maybe I don't know. And maybe I need to talk to people. Yeah. Do you find that like, the incorporation of mindfulness into your research and into your own personal life has allowed you like a, a little bit more of a competitive edge and being able to take off that hat and being able to be, uh, uh, to, to be able to be culturally competent. Yeah, I think, I think mindfulness is a great tool to use and a great skill to practice. And I think it lends itself well when you're having difficult conversations, because really what you're trying to do is you're trying to listen to somebody in a non-judgmental way and, mm -hmm. and, and engage in active listening. And that's, mm -hmm. that is what mindfulness is. And so I think when you, when you merge those things together, it is helpful and it, it has been helpful for me. I, I would say that I'm still working on those kinds right. of things. I wouldn't say, so I wouldn't say like, yeah, I'm like, um, I'm better at I'm the Buddha now and I solved all the problems. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say that I'm better at anyone um, than anyone because I, I practice mindfulness in my everyday life and then I research it. So I kind of have an idea. But mm -hmm. I, I also think it's mindfulness is important even for, you know, after discussing difficult, having difficult conversations, you can kind of reground yourself, engage in love and kindness, meditation shows so that you can, you can like re-energize. Um, it, it can be a part of self-care, but it can also facilitate um, better, uh, more active listening in, co in conversations mm -hmm. that are, that might be difficult or that, I think I was reading the article where you advertised this podcast and I read the article and it said something about when you are in the present moment, it kind of, it kind of puts a stop to you using your implicit bias that you have because you're just focused on the moment. So I think, I think that's where mindfulness lends a hand and I, I've, I have found it helpful for myself. So what, what practices would you say can researchers who are interested in having cultural humility um, and pr other practitioners and teachers, what can they do? And what are some mindfulness recommendations that you would, you would give to them so that they can help facilitate that process and really, really move through it? 
So one of my biggest recommendations for people who are just starting out, perhaps I think sometimes when you are white, you don't really think about your culture, um, but I would recommend this for anyone not just people who are white, is to start within yourself and kind of analyze where you're at. What are your values? What are your beliefs? And do you know your do you know the history of where you reside at um, and mm -hmm. how that has influenced, how that continues to influence your everyday interactions and the systems that you're a part of. So I, I would I would recommend that's where that you could start, you know, just kind of focusing on yourself, making sure that you are up to speed. You're you're in the process of learning about yourself because that that awareness is going to be important so that you can move forward and continue to grow and learn and be able to step back and say, okay, um, these are my values. This is how it influences me. So now when I have a conversation, I can be more aware about those things and not let it interfere with me coming across as rude or not politically correct and things like that. So definitely start start there start with yourself and then other things you can do I think is it's like really simple things you know like if you're watching movies and stuff making sure that you watch movies that aren't just part of pop culture movies listen to music attend festivals and and really engage with the community that you're a part of and I think that lends itself well to cultural humility because then you can actually build those relationships with people and build relationships with other people that that helps you interact with other people and kind of increases your your cultural knowledge mm -hmm. and then the last thing you said about mindfulness what kind of mindfulness activities would I recommend mm -hmm. I think one thing I would recommend that has been very helpful for me in uh, increasing compassion is love and kindness meditation I often use it especially mm -hmm. like with my own family member but even during stressful times like we have right now, I think that it's a great way to increase compassion for other people, which I think is, and for yourself, which I think is very helpful for cultural humility, because sometimes you, if you do end up critically reflecting, you might find out certain things about yourself or your behaviors, your past behaviors that you're not proud of. So you have to be kind to yourself. You have to show love for yourself. And then, and then also in turn, show love for um, other people. So love and kindness meditation definitely is, is one thing that I would recommend. I'm struck by how, how, how many parallels run between the ideas of mindfulness and like setting intentions and being very present and all of that, how it also reflects in some of your work when it comes to multiculturalism, diversity, mm -hmm. and acceptance. That, that's really interesting. You've also given uh, some talks about different microaggressions and having safe spaces. And I think one of the goals of our organization is to create a safe space, and particularly a mindful space. So would you have any recommendations for anybody who's trying to create a safe space, uh, whether it be a research, a parent, uh, or what, what would you recommend for creating safe spaces where we can cultivate that intentionality? And how do we have those conversations in a safe space? So... I'm by no means an expert in creating safe spaces, but I think definitely having that energy and that safe space within the facilitators that are doing it, I think if they are in a great place, then that kind of sets the precedent. And one, one thing that I think really works is having people relate with one another. So set, setting um, 
guidelines to what what our intentions is with this conversation what what are the rules but then i i also i also think that when you get people to relate to one another it's a lot easier to create a safe space so that people can feel comfortable i think one thing that people like to do because of of time and all these other things is like they have a let's say a talk, like when we had the microaggressions talk. And mm-hmm. I mean, you can try your best to create the, a safe space as much as possible. But I think the goal should be creating continual safe spaces conversation. So it can't just start at one talk of microaggressions and people aren't just going to be really nearly open, open to just talk about things like that. I think it, it, it should be a continual talk so like a group of people and making making it so that it's continual and the group the group solidarity is there so I would so yeah I would caution people on doing one day workshops is what basically what I'm saying and trying to more of like a continual process because I think real change and real safe spaces come from um, having people relate to each other and creating group cohesion um, and I think it, it starts with the facilitators. The, the way that I think mindfulness plays a role in this is um, that non-judgmental aspect of it and being present in the moment listening, I think lends itself well, like I said, to active listening, but the non-judgmental part, I hadn't really addressed. And I think that's a very important aspect to creating safe spaces. So I think if you include that in your guidelines, you can you can make make that a safe space. And I remember when I was um, a TA, one of the things that I would do before I started before I started my breakout sessions was we would engage in some mindfulness right before. However, mm-hmm. I, I think I, I think that's a great way, but I also think that it can be confused. And I, I know that you guys talk a little bit about this mindfulness spiritual spirituality can be confused. Some people may not know exactly. I had gauged my audience. Um, I asked them if they would like to do this and everyone like participate in the survey and they said this. So I wouldn't just start off with mindfulness, but I would do something that maybe not call it mindfulness, something that would generate the same, the same things that mindfulness does, which is being non-judgmental, being present and in the moment and mm-hmm. making sure we're listening to one another. Obviously you're very right. You have to have leadership in place to have that formal setting to have that, but then there's some level of, uh, vulnerability and authenticity that has to be had um, that mm-hmm. I think is that really melds well with mindfulness as, as not only a concept but as a practice. Um, mm-hmm. As much as what we do in the lab is focusing on and getting people to to release a little bit, not be so judgmental, and then to allow these thoughts to come and just for them to be able to look at them, let them go if they need to, uh, and if something does come up that is confrontational and is a little bit too much you still have the tools to deal with it if only we were just you know those fifth graders who had five years worth of medication <laughs> we built in, maybe we'd be a little bit better off uh, <laughs> Definitely. but i think that i think that's really it i i do have a few more questions before we leave though um this is going to be a rapid fire round so what are three things that you would recommend for people to read on mindfulness on mindfulness so i i do have my little list here that I created. So m- most of the things that I, I have on my list are just research that I think is seminal to school-based mindfulness. So it's kind of focused on that. I think a good start would be nurturing mindfulness in children and youth. It's a journal article. It's current state of the research. And that's okay. by Greenberg and Harris. And then I always think a systematic review is a great way to start because then you can 
you can see what's out there and then move forward and look at all the other research that's cited in there. So systematic review of mindfulness-based interventions for youth in school settings. I think that's a good start and it really helped me kind of fine tune my research. And that's by Felver, Hoyos, Tesanos, and Singh, 2016. And then lastly, I support uh, single case studies and I think it's a great way to close the research and practice gap, especially for practicing school psychologists who are working with individual families and and kids. And so I, my last recommendation is the effect of mindfulness-based intervention on disruptive behavior, which is an interest of mine. And then a meta-analysis of single case research. And that is by Klein Bell and his colleagues. There's a lot of people on there. (laughs) <laughs> um, but yeah, those are my three three recommendations to start. Preaching to the choir, I'm sure you all know about these. I, you know what? I can't say that I've read all of those, but I will <laughs> certainly go out and read them now. Um, so what are three resources you would like to recommend people look at for diversity, multiculturalism, microaggressions, and cultural humility? So one of the books that we use for our microaggressions presentation was The Race Talk by Daryl Wing Su, which is mm-hmm. actually... He didn't coin um, he, he didn't coin microaggressions, but he kind of paved the way f- for the research, or not paved the way. The person who coined it paved the way, but he kind of advanced the research. So, Grace Talk mm-hmm. and the Conspiracy of Silence is a book that I would recommend, and then I would also recommend the book by. Actually, she's having a talk today where she's discussing how to address race with children, which I'm going to attend. It's at six. Um, But it's why all the kids, black kids sitting together in the cafeteria. And that's by uh, Dr. Beverly Tatum. And I think that's a really good book. Addresses some things there. And then I think that Culture Humility, that is basically my model. And I think reading the journal article that that started in all culture humility versus cultural competence, a critical distinction in defining physician training outcomes and multicultural education by Turbalon and Murray Garcia. I think that's a, another good one to read. But of course, there's so many, so many things out there to read. And I didn't, and this, this is mostly just talking about, well, the first is mostly talking about race. I mean, diversity is very large. And, and so I'm definitely missing a lot of things here, but I think that's a good place to start. We also are taking user questions, and so we'll have user questions towards the end of every episode. And one of them was, what are some useful mindfulness curriculums, manuals, or practices that you often use as a practitioner with children? So I haven't actually used any manualized treatments, but there's this uh, social emotional learning curriculum called Second Step. And I've actually, yeah, I've actually used the mindfulness-based materials for for their curriculum. I forget what it's called. Mind Yeti, that's what it's called. So I've used Mind Yeti with some of my kids before, but then I also use, I also use just belly breathing or just breathing in general, because I know a lot of research supports that. So I'm trying to use evidence-based things with my kids. So oftentimes I use things like this, like it has star breathing. I teach kids to do this or um, for a lot of the younger kids, which 
I do enjoy working with younger kids, six and, and down, which they're more difficult to, to work with. Um, and in terms of like teaching them to meditate, like they don't meditate for five minutes. It's more like, let's do some belly breathing for 10 breaths and that's it. So I do that a lot with my kids and, you know, it, it actually works and it's, it's very simple and easy tool to use. And I pass it along to the teachers. So when I consult with them, I make sure that they know, like, you know, sometimes kids just need to take a breath. Um, and so mm-hmm. those are some of the tools that I used in the past. Okay. We've got another viewer question. What advice do you have for future researchers who conduct similar studies to the PTK study, specifically incorporating mindfulness practices into schools? It takes a a big team. And so it was the first time I've ever co-led or facilitated and helped uh, Dr. Smith with something like this. So it definitely takes a lot of like organization and making sure that you have people uh, like a a lot of people on your team. So making sure that you have backups for backups, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. um, That's definitely something. But I feel like my advice is biased because I also have advice for some of my own faults. And not Mm -hmm. not everyone necessarily has the same like challenges that I do. But when you're actually doing the writing for, for this, I would say on an Excel sheet, keep all your research there, making sure that you write, you, you, you kind of write, which is something that I've been trying to implement, but you write why you used it. You kind of, you put a link of the article, things like that. I think that keeps you organized with regards to the mm-hmm. writing. And that's something that I've had a hard time doing, um, making sure that I'm citing, making sure that I'm looking at all the research. So for the writing side, yes, be organized, but also when you're working with schools, definitely make sure that you're organized and prepared for, for things to not fall plan the way that you wanted to like be flexible. And the last thing is making sure you're building relationships with the schools because it's really difficult to do work with schools just because there's a lot of barriers. Um, and just so making sure that you're building relationships with the school is important. Okay. The last question is, could you share one mindfulness practice that has helped you? I've often liked, like I mentioned before, using my love and kindness meditation, but as of late, body scan uh, mindfulness activities and meditations have been very helpful for me because it kind of reminds me to connect my body to how I'm doing emotionally, mentally. So that's really been helpful. Okay. Yeah, I think I think we covered all the bases, hopefully. Okay, well, perfect. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much, Kim. And thank you for everybody for listening to the Mindful Symposium series, episode one. Uh, We will be releasing an episode every two weeks with new researchers and practitioners every episode. So make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Mindful Coops. So you can check out our Instagram, our Twitter, and our uh, Facebook all down below. Thank you so so much, Kim, for joining us. And thank you so much for everybody for listening to the first ever episode of the Mindful Symposium series. 